Cautionary note. This episode contains discussion about suicide and self-harm. Listener discretion is advised. A young woman is kneeling down on the floor of a gymnasium on a large white sheet of paper. She's dressed in all black. In front of her are two tape recorders and ten knives, laid out in a row, all in various sizes. A chef's knife, a paring knife, a butcher's blade, a carving knife, and others. Her movements are deliberate, calculated. She presses the record button on the first tape recorder and picks up the first knife. She extends her left arm, pressing her hand against the floor, splaying her fingers open, and begins. The blade stabs into the white spaces between her fingers, alternating at an alarming rate. The audience that fills the gymnasium is speechless. They know at any moment she can miss, slice a finger, or worse, cut an artery. Some begin to assume she practiced this, but they're wrong. The knife has landed on a piece of flesh. The young woman places it down and picks up the second blade and resumes. Her black hair, draping across her face, sways in rhythm to the blade. Every time she misses the white space and cuts her flesh, she switches to the next knife and resumes. The game is becoming clear. Ten knives, ten painful mistakes. She seems possessed by this dangerous game, and so is the audience. They want to look away, but they can't. After 20 minutes, she makes it through all ten knives. The white sheet is covered in spatters of her blood, and her left hand is marked in fresh cuts. She stops the tape recorder and rewinds the cassette. At this moment, she presses record on the second tape player and hits play on the first. As the audio recording of her performance begins, she picks up knife number one again. The audience has no idea what's going on. The original recording plays. She stabs the white spaces between her fingers, matching the same rhythm. And when the mistake happens, she matches that too. Same moment, same cut. She puts knife number one down and picks up knife number two. Same rhythm, same knife, same mistake. The artist performing this piece is named Marina Abramovich. She's 27 at this time. This is her first solo performance. It's occurring at a contemporary art festival in Edinburgh, Scotland, during the summer of 1973. The audience is witnessing a conflation of time, removed of all sentimentality. The immediacy of witnessing this self-inflicted violence anchors them firmly in the present. After 20 minutes, Marina has worked through all ten knives again and relived her past mistakes. She stops the second tape player, the one that was still recording, and rewinds it. Kneeling deep in thought, she presses play and listens to the recording of herself, re-performing the knife ritual while the first recording also plays in the background. Marina listens to the entire 20 minutes, and once the recording ends, she rises and leaves. The audience erupts in wild applause. Later, Marina writes this about the performance. Pretty soon I had gone through all ten knives, and the white paper was stained very impressively with my blood. The crowd stared, dead silent, and a very strange feeling came over me, something I had never dreamed of. It was as if electricity was running through my body, and the audience and I had become one, a single organism. <laughs> 
The sense of danger in the room had united the onlookers and me in that moment, the here and now, and nowhere else. That thing that each of us lives with, that you are your own little self privately. Once you step into the performance space, you are acting from a higher self, and it's not you anymore. It's not the you that you know. It's something else. There on the gymnasium floor of Melville College in Edinburgh, Scotland, it was as if I had become, at the same time, a receiver and transmitter of huge Tesla-like energy. The fear was gone, the pain was gone. I had become a marina whom I did not yet know." Unquote. This was Marina Abramovich's first solo performance in a medium which was still in its infancy, called performance art. The piece is called Rhythm 10. In many ways, this performance tells you everything you need to know about her. The intensity of her conviction, the seriousness of her intent, and her incredible courage, all of which would continue to inform her work throughout the ensuing decades of her career until the present. In her biography, she writes this about the moment after the performance. Listening to the wild applause from the audience, I knew I'd succeeded in creating an unprecedented unity of time present and time past with random errors. I had experienced absolute freedom. I'd felt that my body was without boundaries, limitless, that pain didn't matter, that nothing mattered at all. And it intoxicated me. I was drunk from the overwhelming energy I'd received. That was the moment that I knew I had found my medium. No painting, no object that I could make could ever give me that kind of feeling. And it was a feeling I knew I would have to seek out again and again and again." Unquote. So what is performance art? Why is performance art? Who is Marina Aramovich? And what valuable lessons do her works teach us about human existence? Let's find out. Welcome to Creative Codex. I am MJ Dorian. This is episode 36, Marina Abramovich, part one, life or death. Let's begin. Chapter 1. Initiation Marina Abramovich comes from a country that doesn't exist. It's a fitting origin for an artist who specializes in immaterial art. Abramovich was born in Belgrade, the capital of Yugoslavia, on November 30, 1946, a country in southeastern Europe. Yugoslavia's roots begin in 1942, in response to World War II, and the country dissolves 50 years later, in 1992 following the Yugoslav Wars, splitting it up into modern-day Serbia and Montenegro. To say that Marina has war in her blood is an understatement. Her parents were war heroes, 
They fought against the Nazis in World War II. Both Danica and Voyo were partisans of the Yugoslavian Communist Party. Their first meeting reads like a classic war-torn romance novel. Marina's mother, Danica, was a major in the army. During World War II, she commanded a squad that would locate wounded partisan soldiers and bring them to safety. But during one German invasion, she contracted a severe case of typhus and lay unconscious among the wounded soldiers, covered by a blanket. In Marina's autobiography, titled Walk Through Walls, she continues this story, saying, She could have easily died there if my father hadn't been such a lover of women. And when he saw her long hair sticking out from under the blanket, he simply had to lift it to take a look. And when he saw how beautiful she was, he carried her to safety in a nearby village, where the peasants nursed her back to health. Six months later, she was back on the front lines, helping to bring injured soldiers back to the hospital. There, she instantly recognized one of the badly wounded as the man who had rescued her. My father was just lying there, bleeding to death. There was no blood available for transfusions, but my mother discovered that she had the same blood type and gave him her blood and saved his life, like a fairy tale. Then the war divided them once more, but they found each other again, and when the war was over, they married. I was born the following year, November 30th, 1946. The night before I was born, my mother dreamt she gave birth to a giant snake. The next day, while she was leading a party meeting, her water broke. She refused to interrupt the meeting until it was over. Only then would she go to the hospital. I was born prematurely. The birth was very difficult for my mother. The placenta didn't come out completely. She developed sepsis. Again, she almost died. She had to stay in the hospital for almost a year. For a while after that, it was hard for her to continue working or to raise me." Unquote. When Danica gave birth to Marina, after her snake dream, it was Voyo who insisted on naming her. He named her Marina after another woman he had fallen in love with during the war. She was a Russian soldier who was killed by a grenade blast in front of his eyes. Even this simple gesture of Voyo naming his daughter after another woman likely colored Danica's first experiences as a mother with resentment. Marina recalls that her mother had a strict obsession for cleanliness and order. She suspects it was a reaction to the chaos of her marriage. When Danica would find out that one of Voyo's girlfriends gave little Marina a present, she would throw the gifts out of the window. Marina recounts, My parents' marriage was like a war. I never saw them hug or kiss or express any affection toward each other. Maybe it was just an old habit from partisan days, but they both slept with loaded pistols on their bedside tables. I remember once, during a rare period when they were speaking to each other, my father came home for lunch and my mother said, do you want soup? And when he said yes, she came up behind him and dumped the hot soup on his head. He screamed, pushed the table away, broke every dish in the room and walked out. There was always this tension. They'd never talk. There was never a Christmas when anybody was happy. We didn't have Christmas anyway. We were communists. Living in this strict communist household meant that little Marina had few luxuries. And even worse, her mother and aunt often slapped and beat her as punishment for her misbehavior. Many of the childhood stories she shares in her autobiography end with a slap from her mother. Later in life, Marina interviews her mother and asks her why she never kissed or hugged her as a child. Danica's response is, I didn't want to spoil you. 
But there is a source of solace for young Marina, art and literature. Denitza encourages this interest in her daughter. The apartment is filled with paintings and books, and Marina not only has her own bedroom, but her own painting studio. Marina states, I knew from the age of six or seven that I wanted to be an artist. My mother punished me for many things, but she encouraged me in this one way. Art was holy to her." Unquote. The subjects of young Marina's first paintings are her dreams, which she always writes down and then paints in just two dominant colors, a deep green and a night blue. At the age of 14, Marina designs a long robe for herself in those colors, which she makes from old curtains. She recounts, The only freedom I had was the freedom of expression. There would be money for painting, but there would not be money for clothes. There would be no money for anything that I really desired as a young girl growing up. Yet, if I wanted a book, I would get it. If I wanted to go to the theater, I would be given a ticket. If I wanted to listen to any classical music, the records would be provided to me. And all this culture was not just provided to me, but pushed on me. My mother would leave little notes on the table before she went to work, saying how many French sentences I should learn, what books I should read. Everything was planned out for me. On my mother's orders, I had to read all of Proust from beginning to end, all of Camus, all of André Gide. My father wanted me to read all the Russians. But even under orders, I found my escape in books. Just as with my dreams, the reality of the books I read was stronger than the reality around me. When I read a book, everything around me stopped existing. All the unhappiness in my family, my parents' bitter fights, my grandmother's sadness at having had everything taken away from her, disappeared. I merged with the characters. Extreme narratives fascinated me. I loved reading about Rasputin, whom no bullet could kill. Communism mixed with mysticism was very much part of my DNA." Unquote. Communism mixed with mysticism. This bizarre phrase, in some remarkable way, captures an essence of Marina Abramovich and what her early performances embody. A perfect example of this is Marina's second solo performance piece, Rhythm 5, which she performs in 1974 at the Student Cultural Center in her hometown of Belgrade. She is 27 years old at this time. In her late 20s, the Student Cultural Center becomes a place for Marina to meet with other artists and eventually join with them to form a contemporary art group. They call themselves the Group of Six. The premises of the Student Cultural Center also become a staging ground for new artwork, including her second solo performance piece, Rhythm 5. Her first piece was Rhythm 10 in 1973, which we explored at the start of this episode, the one with ten knives and two tape recorders. On this night, the Group of Six have a special guest in attendance, famed German contemporary artist Joseph Beuys, that's B-E-U-Y-S who often lectures in universities from Europe to America about the concept that the artist is shaman in modern society. He is a fitting guest for this bold and dangerous new work by Marina. The two artists already crossed paths in Edinburgh, so they spend a significant amount of time talking with each other. Marina discusses her plans for Rhythm 5 with boys, mentioning that it will involve a tremendous amount of fire. He warns her, be careful with fire. She writes in her biography, Careful was not part of my vocabulary in those days. Unquote. The performance begins. A large crowd has gathered on the grounds in front of the Student Cultural Center. They stand around a massive wooden star, 
which Marina has built for this performance. It lays flat on the concrete, extending its five points in all directions. It measures 15 feet from point to point. The center is hollow, allowing someone to stand or lay down on the concrete in the center of the star. Its perimeter is about four feet thick. Marina has filled this perimeter with wood shavings. She enters the performance area. Just outside of the star, she is dressed in all black with bare feet. Marina crouches down and sets fire to the wood shavings, which she has thoroughly soaked in 100 liters of gasoline. The fire races around the star's perimeter, creating an impressive display. Marina walks around the star's perimeter, barefoot, like she's beginning a ritual. The aspect of something ancient permeates the air. She stops and cuts her fingernails. She tosses these into the fire. She picks up a pair of scissors, grabs fistfuls of her shoulder-length hair, and cuts it. Holding each handful, she tosses the hair into the fire, like an offering. Her hair now hangs just above her ears. Marina lays down in the center of the star, on the concrete, her legs and arms outstretched, fitting perfectly into the five-pointed star. Everything is dead silent, except for the crackling flames, which surround Marina and are growing in size and strength. A few minutes pass, then the audience notices that there is a flame which is close to her left leg. Does Marina know? Is this part of the performance? Murmurs begin in the crowd. The flame touches her leg, and Marina does not react. Two of her colleagues, Radomir Damjan and Gera Urkom, realize she has lost consciousness. They rush in over the flames and hoist Marina up and out of the star. What happened? As the fire encircled Marina, it consumed all the oxygen around her, creating a bubble of carbon dioxide with her at its center. If the flame hadn't touched her leg, alarming her friends and causing them to rush in, she would have likely remained there for another 20 minutes and died. The author James Westcott writes, Marina asked Gera if he had liked the performance. It was great, he said. You are not lying, Marina probed even though they never sugared their responses to each other's work. Abramovich had just demonstrated shocking mental and physical courage, but was still vulnerable in her craving for approval. 27 years old, she still had to be home that night before her 10 p.m. curfew, returning to what she felt was her parallel reality living under her mother's roof. Danitza was outraged when she found out about Marina's performance. Not only had her daughter risked her life, in a bizarre and brazen public ritual, she had also done something disrespectful and perhaps even dangerous with the beloved communist star. In Tito's fairly liberal society, there was no chance of any direct punitive response, though Danitza probably feared for the subtle effects this act of iconoclasm might have on both her and her daughter's career. Marina later wrote, Why a star? It was a symbol of communism, the repressive force under which I had grown up, the thing I was trying to escape, but it was so many other things too. A pentagram, an icon worshipped and mystified by ancient religions and cults, a shape possessing enormous symbolic power. I was trying to understand the deeper meaning of these symbols by using them in my work.
In her earliest performances, Marina has a penchant for testing her body's limits, and often using pain as a key element of most pieces. A self-inflicted wound, or intentional suffering, which is then sublimated through the performance. Pain has this paradoxical nature. When it is happening to you, and you did not ask for it, it is torturous, as it occurs against your free will. But if you willingly cause yourself pain, in the form of a ritual, through something like ceremonial magic, or even a tattoo, then it can have a transcendent function. In the case of Marina's use of pain, it is always in the context of such rituals. And I don't think you'd be wrong to say that, in these instances, she is performing ceremonial magic. The artwork contains a choreographed action, often symbolic in nature, which has a transformative effect on the performer and the audience. We can then, of course, explore the possibility that all art is a form of magic, but that's a huge topic, perhaps for another episode. Marina's autobiography, Walk Through Walls, is filled with stories concerning the act of overcoming pain, whether physical or emotional. For example, she mentions that she begins to have intense migraines around the age of 12, at the onset of puberty and her monthly periods. She realizes that her mother also has similar migraines, but never speaks about them. Marina writes, I couldn't believe how painful my own migraines were. My mother never talked about hers, and she never said a sympathetic word to me about mine. The attacks lasted a full 24 hours. I would lie in bed in agony, every once in a while running to the bathroom, to vomit and shit simultaneously. The retching and shitting only made the pain worse. I trained myself to lie perfectly still in certain positions, my hand on my forehead, or my legs perfectly straight, or my head tilted a certain way. That seemed to alleviate the agony slightly. It was the beginning of my education in accepting and overcoming pain and fear. The dynamics of pain and its management, which are introduced to her from this early age, no doubt echo through all of her later work. But in the 1970s, Marina was not alone in her interest in testing the body through performance art. In fact, it was a common feature of performance art of that time. The author, James Westcott, writes, In the early 1970s, many artists around the world were using their body as material. It was a newly demonstrative and disturbing practice, but one that had deep historical roots in the 20th century. Abramovich understood intuitively the irresistible potential and power of body art. It was a way of embodying the cerebral processes of conceptual art that dominated the avant-garde of that time, a way of investing mere concepts with the physical and psychic commitment of blood, sweat, and fear Performance went beyond theory into the realm of excruciatingly real experience, both for artists and audiences, which were presented with unfamiliar ethical challenges by the demonstration of real pain and danger in front of them." Unquote. Knowing about this tendency in contemporary art of the time does put Marina's early work into perspective, as her first pieces were in the early 1970s. But there are other aspects we haven't yet explored about her personal life which show that this risk-taking, this penchant for a self-inflicted wound, is tied up with a deep psychological force within her. This force is even present in one of her earliest proposals for an unperformed piece. In 1970, at the age of 24, Marina proposes a performance piece to the Belgrade Youth Center. It would have been her first solo performance, even before Rhythm 10. 
The piece is simply named Untitled. Here is the official summary of the work. Untitled. Unperformed project. Proposal. Gallery space. I stand in front of the public, dressed in my regular clothes. At the side of the stage, there is a clothes rack on which hang the clothes that my mother wanted me to wear. Slowly, I take the clothes one by one, and I change into them. I stand facing the public for a while. From the right pocket of my skirt, I take a gun. From the left pocket of my skirt, I take a bullet. I put the bullet into the chamber and turn it. I place the gun to my temple. I pull the trigger. This performance has two possible endings. And if I live, my life will have a new beginning. 1970, Belgrade Youth Center. That's some heavy stuff. You have to wonder how serious Marina was about this piece. Did she actually think it might be approved? In later interviews, she confesses that she was entirely serious about it, and that she was ready to do it. That to her, art has always been about life or death. No compromise. She approaches all of her art with this kind of absolutism. The proposal for Untitled includes an illustration of the clothes Marina would change into at the start of the performance. It reads, List of my mother's clothes for me. Heavy brown pin for the hair, white cotton blouse with red dots, light pink bra, two sizes too big, heavy flannel slip, dark pink, three sizes too big, dark blue skirt, mid-calf, heavy synthetic stockings, skin color, heavy orthopedic shoes with laces. Unquote. The heavy orthopedic shoes seem incredibly specific. In her autobiography, Marina talks about these clip-clop shoes, as she calls them, and the tremendous embarrassment she felt in having to wear them. Not only were they large and clumsy, but they had metal soles, which would make clip-clop sounds wherever she went. She also mentions this incident from her teen years, writing, I was president of the chess club in my school. I was a good player and my school won a competition, and I was chosen to receive the award on stage. My mother didn't want to get me a new dress for the ceremony, so there I was on stage in my orthopedic shoes and fake petticoat, and the official gave me the award, five new chessboards. And as I was carrying them off stage, my big shoe got caught on something, and I fell down, the boards flying every which way. Everybody laughed. After that, they couldn't get me out of the house for days. No more chess deep shame, maximum self-consciousness." The wardrobe elements Marina lists in Untitled seem essential to the piece, and especially personal. Thankfully, the proposal was rejected, and Marina never performed Untitled in 1970. But imagine for a moment if she had, and if she died in her first performance. What a tremendous tragedy that would have been for all that she has brought into the world since then, to be so easily extinguished. A psychoanalyst named Jeanette Fisher sat down with Marina for several conversations, which were published in a book called Psychoanalyst Meets Marina Abramovich, and she believes the elements of the untitled piece are symbolic of the existential crisis Marina is experiencing at that time, about being trapped within the boundaries and constraints defined by her mother. This is symbolized by the wearing of the clothes chosen by her mother. Dr. Fisher further elaborates. Marina must give up herself to comply with her mother's wishes. Psychoanalysts 
call this the self-object. The daughter becomes her mother's object, and she can earn recognition only in this manipulated role. The wounded ego expects and desires fulfillment." Unquote. All of this reminds me of something that the celebrated Jungian analyst and author Marie-Louise von Franz once said. Concerning the relationship between life and death, she commented, the drive towards life and the drive towards death, they are the same drive. This statement has always perplexed me, but somehow I feel that the answer seems to be present in Marina's performances, like it is encoded inside the DNA of the art in some way. In our explorations thus far, we've discovered that this theme of the self-inflicted wound in Marina's early work seems to be symbolic of a drive to destroy or transform a part of herself. She is not simply playing with aesthetics or contemporary trends. This is deeply personal work. But there is one more theme which arises in the aftermath of Rhythm 5, after Marina loses consciousness in the burning star. A theme which pervades all the art that follows. Control. Now it's time for a brief intermission. At this point of the episode, in most podcasts, you'd hear an ad for yet another superhero movie, or chocolate-covered Adderall, or sugar-free laxative gummy bears. But not on Creative Codex. Instead, I'm going to tell you about all the cool things you can get by becoming a supporter of the show on Patreon. For each series I produce for the show, I'm always left with a surplus of titillating tidbits about the topic at hand. These are stories or facts which just don't fit into the main narrative or flow of the episodes. But I don't want to just leave them on the cutting room floor. So I make them into these episode exclusives. These are little minisodes that explore interesting stories related to the creative geniuses covered here. For example, for the Hieronymus Bosch series, there was this wild theory about why Bosch painted the Garden of Earthly Delights, which I didn't have time to get into during those two episodes. Instead, I recorded it as an episode exclusive, which you can listen to for free on my Patreon. This minisode is called The Strange Origin of Bosch's Garden, A Secret Society, A Royal Wedding, and an STD. Yeah, it's a nutty topic, and you can listen to that one for free on Patreon. No subscription needed. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash m-j-d-o-r-i-a-n. I've also included a link in the episode description. Beyond these minisodes, I've also produced a deep dive series into Kurt Cobain, the singer and songwriter of the band Nirvana, which is only available on my Patreon. It is part of what I call the limited release series. I made this as a thank you to subscribers in the $5 and up tiers. The Kurt Cobain series totals over four hours, spread across three episodes, covering his teenage years, Nirvana's rise to fame, and Kurt's tragic end. Here's a sample from episode one of the Kurt Cobain series. This section explores Kurt's first forays into songwriting and grunge music. In 1984, while Kurt was still in high school, his friend Buzz Osborne gave him a mixtape that would change Kurt's life. Buzz was the lead singer and guitarist of a local grunge band called The Melvins. Kurt idolized him as a huge influence early on. Buzz was the only person Kurt knew who had started a rock band and was playing local shows. That cassette tape that Buzz gave Kurt featured a choice cut of the finest punk music of the last five years, a style of music Kurt had never heard before. 
It didn't play on local radio stations, and it was too underground for TV shows. His reaction to the music was immediate and substantial. He felt he had finally found what he was looking for. The freedom, the aggression, the noise, a new form of musical expression. By this point in high school, Kurt had already been playing guitar and drums, picking up 70s rock songs and learning his favorite Beatles hits. That's right, Kurt loved the Beatles. But this music was altogether different. This was raw and unapologetic, and it gave Kurt a new direction and a new goal, to start his own punk band. He starts attending rehearsals regularly for Buzz's band, The Melvins, and becomes friends with all the band members, all the while writing his own songs and guitar riffs at home. He puts together enough original songs for a small concert or a small album. One year later, in 1985, he convinces the Melvins drummer, Dale Crover, to help him record a demo. Dale gets along with Kurt well, so they form a temporary two-piece band of guitar and drums, with Kurt on vocals. They name themselves Fecal Matter. <laughs> Why not? They lean into it, and the cover of the cassette demo is a drawing of dog poo, or human poo. It's hard to tell. Not the most marketable name or gimmick, but this isn't about success, after all. Not yet. This is about playing music. This is about expression. This is about cutting your teeth and learning to fly. In 1985, Dale and Kurt go to Aunt Marie's house. She happens to have a four-track recorder. She recalls the day, saying in an interview, Kurt arrived with a huge book full of lyrics. I showed him how to adjust a few things, how to record with the reel-to-reel, and he went right at it." Unquote. They proceed to lay down guitar and vocals by Kurt and drums and bass by Dale. The result <laughs> sounds better than their name would suggest. Now you're in for a treat. I managed to track down a copy of the demo tape. Here is the debut of the song Bambi Slaughter by Fecal Matter. Yeah. 
Insane camera food trucks stealing. Tobacco from grocery stores scamming. Tapes from my just losing friends. Just me planning. Pretty little houses to rob. All right, so not exactly a song for American Idol, <laughs> but that's honestly what makes this so fun to listen to. Kurt is only 18 years old at this time, and putting this together is actually a major accomplishment for someone who is entirely self-taught and doesn't even technically have a band. The song is called Bambi Slaughter, and I really like the groove at the start of it. It reminds me a lot of modern stoner rock. In this early stuff, you can already see some of the influences that will continue to inform the early Nirvana sound, namely punk music and riff-driven 70s rock. This unique combination will come to be known as grunge, and it will become identified as the Seattle sound by the 1990s. But in 1985, as 18-year-old Kurt is grunting into a four-track recorder in his aunt's living room, this doesn't have a label yet. It's something new. That was a sample from episode one of my Kurt Cobain limited release series. You can listen to it with immediate access by becoming a supporter on my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. The link for that is also in the episode description. And I thank you in advance for that. Without further ado, back to episode 36, Marina Abramovich, part one, Life or Death. After Marina is rescued from the flaming star of Rhythm 5, she feels disappointed in herself that she lost control during her performance. She vows never to let any element of her artwork take this control away from her again, not without her consent. This becomes a new theme which you see her exploring in the art that follows, and in some cases, she designs the pieces with the intention to give up control, the idea being that if her goal is to lose consciousness, then the piece achieves its desired goal. We see her exploring this new control theme in Rhythm 2 and Rhythm 4. A few months after the Burning Star performance, Marina is invited to perform a new piece, titled Rhythm 2, at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Zagreb. To prepare for the performance, she obtains two pills from a local hospital, one that forces catatonic patients to move, and another that pacifies schizophrenics. Rhythm 2 goes as follows. She sits at a table in the center of the space with a glass of water and two pills. As the audience watches, she takes pill number one. Within a few minutes, her body begins to jerk erratically and a mechanical grin spreads across her face. The display is disturbing. At one point, she sways forward, almost falling out of her chair. Marina notes that she is completely aware of what is happening, but unable to stop it. After an hour, the effects of the first pill wear off. With her faculties back, Marina turns on a radio and listens to Slavic folk songs for a few minutes. Then she consumes pill number two. This pill plunges her into a passive trance with a vacant grin on her face. She is aware of nothing, not even her body. Marina sits there, motionless, for five hours, the length of time it takes for the pill to wear off. Once she is able to move again, this signals the end of the performance.
It's around this time, in 1974, that Marina begins to develop a reputation. Word is spreading outside of Belgrade and into the art world about this strange and reckless young woman. In Milan, at the Galleria Diagramma, she performs Rhythm 4, continuing her exploration of control. But again, like in Rhythm 5, something unexpected happens. In this piece, Marina physically separates herself from the audience. She is alone, in a white room, and completely naked. A camera is filming her. The audience is in the next room, observing the performance on a screen. She crouches over a high-powered industrial fan, which blows a powerful current of air at her face. Marina brings her face a few inches from the fan, attempting to fill her lungs with the torrent of air. She has instructed the cameraman to zoom in closely on only her face so that the audience does not see the fan. As she loses consciousness from the inability to breathe, the torrent of air animates her face, giving the audience the illusion that she is still present. Marina is navigating this line between consciousness and unconsciousness and challenging the audience to spot the difference. The cameraman and the museum gallery staff become concerned. They cannot just passively watch as she passes out, and perceiving that she may be in danger, they pull the plug and rush in to save her, stopping the performance. Marina insists that she was never in danger, unlike in Rhythm 5. Here, it was only a perceived danger, but regardless, it is the second solo performance of hers, which is cut short before completion. She writes in her biography, It wasn't needed, it wasn't intended, but it all became part of the piece. I had wanted attention for my work, but much of the attention I got in Belgrade was negative. My hometown newspapers ridiculed me viciously. What I was doing had nothing to do with art, they wrote. I was nothing but an exhibitionist and a masochist, they said. I belonged in a mental hospital, they claimed. The photographs of me naked in Galleria Diagramma from the Rhythm for Performance were especially scandalous. This reaction to my work led me to plan my most daring piece to date. What if, instead of doing something to myself, I let the public decide what to do to me?" Unquote. Rhythm Zero is the final piece of Marina Abramovich's Rhythm series. On the heels of facing harsh criticism about her performances, she decides she wants to turn the tables. One of the common accusations from critics of the time is that performance artists are simply masochists, inflicting pain on themselves in public and calling it art. So, instead of testing how far her body can go, Marina wants to test how far will the public go? What thoughts, feelings, and dark impulses does the public harbor? She receives an invitation to perform at Studio Mora in Naples, Italy, and begins to plan the piece. What Marina experiences in Rhythm Zero is one of the most terrifying incidents in all of art history. As always, Marina arrives early and sets up the space. It's indoors at Studio Mora in Naples. This piece involves dozens of objects, which she lays out on a long table. The performance begins at 8 p.m. As the large crowd enters the gallery space, they find Marina standing behind the table, wearing a black shirt and black trousers. They also find these instructions. Rhythm Zero. Instructions. There are 72 objects on the table that one can use on me as desired. Performance. I am the object. During this period, I take full responsibility. Duration, 6 hours. 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. 1974, Studio Mora. 
Naples. The 72 objects on the table are an assortment of objects for pleasure and objects for pain. They are as follows. Blue paint, comb, bell, whip, lipstick, pocket knife, fork, perfume, spoon, cotton, flowers, matches, rose, candle, water, scarf, mirror, drinking glass, Polaroid camera, feather, chains, nails, needle, safety pin, hairpin, brush, bandage, red paint, white paint, scissors, pen, book, hat, handkerchief, sheet of white paper, kitchen knife, hammer, saw, piece of wood, axe, stick, bone of lamb, newspaper, bread, wine, honey, salt, sugar, soap, cake, metal pipe, scalpel, metal spear, bell, dish, flute, band-aid, alcohol, metal, coat, shoes, chair, leather strings, yarn, wire, sulfur, grapes, olive oil, rosemary branch, apple, gun, bullet. Marina stands stoic, motionless, with a gaze that extends beyond the gallery space, making no eye contact with anyone. She is ready to take a bullet for art. This is the spirit that she brings to every piece. A crowd fills the large room. They are timid and hesitant about what to do in this scenario. Will Marina react to their actions? Does she truly take full responsibility? Things start slowly, but as the performance nears midnight, the Italian audience grows bolder. In the unconscious fabric of Italian culture, there is what Freud called the Madonna whore complex. People under the influence of such a complex will either see a woman as a saintly Madonna or a debased prostitute. In the third hour, a man picks up the scissors and cuts off Marina's blouse. She stands nude with her breasts exposed. A photographer takes pictures as people pose her, embrace her, make her sit in a chair, put a hat on her head. Someone grabs the small mirror and with the lipstick writes, Io sono libero on the glass, Italian for I am free. They place it in her hands to display. A man takes Polaroids of her and sticks them between her fingers like playing cards. Someone places rose petals on Marina's nipples. Marina is entirely present, taking it all in. She notices that the men are the ones primarily doing the actions, and the women occasionally tell them what to do next. Someone pricks her with rose thorns. A man sticks a pin into her skin. Her eyes tear up, and as the tears roll down her face, a woman comes and wipes them. Things are getting strange. The audience seems to be relinquishing responsibility. They're becoming possessed by the energy of the performance. A man pours a glass of water over her head. Then someone cuts her neck with the knife and sucks her blood. Two people lift Marina up and carry her over to a table. She is laid down with her legs open. Someone stabs a knife into the table between her legs. A moment later, she is placed upright again. Marina is aware and present for everything. In spite of the severity of these actions, she feels thankful there are some women present who discourage the men from even worse violation or criminal behavior. After midnight, the performance has divided the large crowd into smaller factions. There are those who are possessed by their whims and those who are concerned for Marina's well-being. Marina later recalls a certain moment from the performance in her biography, writing, there is one man, 
a very small man who stands very close to me, breathing heavily. This man scares me. Nobody else, nothing else does, but he does. After a while, he puts the bullet in the pistol and puts the pistol in my right hand. He moves the pistol toward my neck and touches the trigger. There is a murmur in the crowd and someone grabs him. A scuffle breaks out. Some of the audience obviously want to protect me. Others want the performance to continue. This being Southern Italy, voices are raised, tempers flare. The little man is hustled out of the gallery and the piece continues. In fact, the audience became more and more active, as if in a trance." Unquote. 2 a.m. finally arrives. The gallerist enters the performance space and announces, the performance is over. Thank you. Marina assumes control of herself again. She breaks her transfixed gaze and begins to make eye contact with individual audience members. Marina writes about this moment. I looked like hell. I was half-naked, bleeding, and my hair was wet. And then a strange thing happened. At this moment, the people who were still there suddenly became afraid of me. As I walked toward them, they ran out of the gallery. The gallerist drove me back to my hotel, and I went to my room alone, feeling more alone than I'd felt for a long time. I was exhausted, but my mind wouldn't stop buzzing, replaying scenes from the wild evening. The pain that had been absent when I received the pinpricks and the cut to my neck now throbbed. The fear of that little man wouldn't leave me. Eventually, I fell into a kind of half-sleep. In the morning, I looked in the mirror, and a whole clump of my hair had turned gray. In that moment, I realized that the public can kill you. The next day, the gallery received dozens of phone calls from people who had participated in the show. They were terribly sorry, they said. They didn't really understand what had happened while they were there. They didn't know what had come over them. What had happened while they were there, quite simply, was performance. And the essence of performance is that the audience and the performer make the piece together. I wanted to test the limits of how far the public would go if I didn't do anything at all. On the next Creative Codex. Marina finally leaves her mother's home and begins to travel the world as a performance artist. Out in the world, she meets her artistic soulmate, Ulai. Marina finds in him someone who not only understands her and accepts her, but as a fellow artist, someone who is capable of pushing his body to the same extremes that she does. What follows is one of the most intense love stories in art history. All this and more on the next Creative Codex. I hope you've enjoyed part one of my series about Marina Abramovich. I find that it's in her early work that we truly see exemplified this truth of art. Every creative act is an act of courage. This insight has been on my mind recently, and I wrote an essay about it, which you can listen to in the podcast feed. 
It's in the episode right before this one, called Letter to a Young Artist in the 21st Century. In Marina's early work, you can really appreciate the tremendous amount of courage required to perform these pieces of her rhythm series, especially in the face of the combined ridicule of her mother, critics, and even the local newspapers. And yet, for her to continue is really inspiring. It's a lesson for all of us who experience those moments of self-doubt or fear of the potential judgment of others for just being ourselves or for creating art. But in all honesty, at the end of the day, it's a you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't scenario. Because if you don't follow this compulsion to create because of fear, well, your deeper self will find ways to remind you that you aren't living up to your full potential. Eventually, you must answer the call in whatever way that manifests. Every creative act is an act of courage. Concerning the final performance we covered, Rhythm Zero, there are just so many lessons to glean from this piece. Among them, these stick out to me. Are artists masochistic? Sure, sometimes. But if given the opportunity, is the public sadistic? Yes, absolutely. It's frightening what comes out of some people when they believe they can get away with something. I think it's one of the reasons the anonymity of the digital space encourages people to be cruel to one another in a way they wouldn't dare to in person. It gives them that opportunity to get away with being sadistic. I can't think of many other pieces of art where that realization is made more clear than in Marina's Rhythm Zero. And it seems to be exactly what her intention was, to peel back the layer of civility and show that just under the surface, there is always this potential for cruelty. And again, for Marina to know that this was the end game of the piece, and for her to go through with it, that takes courage. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone. It's honestly the only way that this little independent show grows and keeps growing, and I thank you in advance for that. I'd like to now send a big, big thank you to my audio editor for this episode, Marissa Ferdenzi. She not only helped me get my rambling takes into tip-top shape, but she also plays the voice of Marina in the opening scene. In case you didn't realize it, the opening was a sonic reenactment of Rhythm 10. So it was not Marina, it was Marissa. Plot twist. And she did an incredible job, sounding like she was actually stabbing her hand. Marissa, hopefully your hand is okay. Thank you. And now, some shout-outs are in order for the Creative Codex Patreon supporters. First, sending a special handshake in thought to my executive producer in the Dreammaker tier, Mike Hill. Thank you, Mike. Sending big thank yous to my Karma Coma supporters. Adana, Blake Bobbitt, Brian Drury, Christelle82, Cryptic Hubris, Don Frias, Isaac Abizade, Josh Smith, Julio Chavez, Chris with a K, Marav Seren, Misha, Michael Thompson, Miss Alex Kennedy, Mona Oman, Russ Jones, Sam McCohey, Stephen Hunter, Vandan Panchal, Denise Stevens, and Talitha Santana. It's an honor to have your support. Thank you so much. Next, shout outs to my Shadow Fan Plus crew Aaron Knight, Ben Thernhofer, Blake Huggins, Brittany Miller, Cerise Walker, Donna Toms Jones, Frank Warren, Fred, Grain of Sand, Hannah Helton, Helena DeMarzio, James SZ, Jane Van Elk, Jeremy, Joe Russell, John Bergmans, John Harrington, Karina, Casey Vandenberg, Ken Goodyear, Lane Zong, Libby Hawker, Logan Kshivitsky, Louis Benton, Lyle Vincent, Maria, 
Marissa, Matt Seibert, Michael Gaffrey, Michael Pisano, Nicole Locilento, Nicole Wessel, Nicole Chen, Rebecca Redding, Ryan Huff, Sean Matthew Howard, Steve Struhar, Tyler McKenzie, Hugh July, Louis Cornejo, Ruben Corona, Susan Maggie, Susie Creamcheese, Tom Rubens, Deborah Myers, Nuit Dor, Angela Lau, Daisy Hernandez, Doxy, Haley, Jenna Cooper, Christian Liebler, John Waterlow, Juliette Gray, Kevin Connell, Kirsten Dressler, Lyndon, Owen McCatier, Sarah Tucker, Talia Gallegos Fada, The Celestial Broom, Tom Ney, Essie Q, Michael Hildbold, Zachary C. Hildum, Holly Clark, Sebastian Flores, Kelly McGuire, Ivana Marie Goroiska, Hope Williams, Dana, Courtney Lewis, Melisine Shaw, James Gustafson, Natalie W., Veronica Pescatelli, Caitlin McGrady, Min Yi Chung, Philip Boithelet, John Rayburn, Barrett Riker, Rebecca Sunday, Juliana Cheplick, J. Kent Crowink, Caleb Stevens, and of course, Zuko's World. Thank you so much, guys. I couldn't do this without you. And the thank yous for all you fine Shadow Fam folks are written in the episode description. I appreciate you too. This has been Creative Codex. I am MJ Dorian. Thank you for listening. Until next time, remember, every creative act is an act of courage. <laughs>